Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Welcome back again, Brother Chuck. We really appreciate you doing this uh, in two sessions today. It's a lot of information. There's a lot of ground to cover, and it's very pertinent information that you're um, revealing to us here. So we're grateful for this. I didn't really cover much of your bio this morning. Um, I was just reading over it here before we started. And it says you were state, you've taught in North America, Europe, and the Middle East. You mentioned this morning that you were in Albania. I'm guessing that was the Middle East. Uh, no, uh, actually, Middle East would be a little further than that. That's right. uh, that, that was that would be Eastern Europe. So right. that's yeah. uh, but uh, I've taught quite a bit in in several countries in Europe, but also uh, getting in the Middle East as well. So I see that's great. Um, so do you speak Farsi? No, I do not. Okay. <laughs> I see. Okay, interesting. Um, I just noticed that um, you've helped develop some resources online. Yes. And you're probably working with a translator or something like that. Yes. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, we appreciate your zeal um, and using your gift of teaching in this way. Um, God bless you for, for all the work you do in, in teaching here and historic faith and, and wherever else you do your teaching. So God bless you for that. Um, before we get started, let's just bow our heads for a word of prayer. Righteous Heavenly Father, we come before you this afternoon. Our hearts are full with joy and adoration for your love and your mercy toward your children. We thank you that you've raised up people among us who can teach and reveal the scripture to us by Holy Spirit inspiration. I pray that you would anoint Brother Chuck as he shares this morning or this afternoon. Pray that your will would be done. And if anything is said that is not according to your plan or your purpose, that it would fall to the ground and that truth would come forth and our hearts could be touched by your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's get started. This is part two of Plundering the Strong Man's House. It's lesson on evangelism, and I want to share some practical insights. Uh, my wife and I were part of a very evangelistic church movement, and so I learned a lot of good and bad things in that both, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to, to share from our own experience. So a little overview of the lesson. I want to start with a parable and uh, uh, the dangers of when people want to become evangelistic, sometimes they'll pick up some, some influences that mess up their churches. So we're going to watch out for that. Um, the, the harvest is still plentiful. I want to talk about that both from what the scriptures say and also uh, personal experience. And the secret sauce. Everyone wants to know what's the secret of evangelism. And I think I think we, we, I stumbled on that, what the secret sauce is. We could share that. And uh, uh, some examples. We have a lot of examples of, of people who came to faith. Uh, and how they how they came there. People from all different backgrounds that my wife and I have uh, have uh, uh, gotten to share the gospel with uh, a general rule of thumb, which will be helpful, I think, for for evangelism. I can't prove it. That's why it's just the rule of thumb, and then a challenge for us to follow up. So I want to start off with a parable, and uh, I told this parable to uh, Bryant Martin's church a few years ago, and I said before I before I, I preached it, I told my wife Allison. He said, "You know, if I if I share this, I'll probably never get invited back here again." And I come to think of it, I never was invited. <laughs> I, I'm just kidding here, but it's a it's a it's a parable. I shared it with, with Sattler also. It's a parable of an ineffective fisherman. Okay, so I want you to imagine that the owner of a pond uh, said, "Listen, this." pond is stocked with bass it's loaded with bass and uh, so feel free you can go in there and and fish to your heart's consent but it's loaded with bass so the the fisherman decides or the the the, the tenant of the property decides that i'm going to be a fisherman and he goes off to cabela gets the catalog goes into the store and he gets all the equipment he gets the he gets the pole and he gets the bucket and he gets the waders and everything else he has all the gear and then he goes in a solemn procession, walking around the pond, holding his bucket out. And he does this for 30 days, but, but, the, but no fish ever jump out of the pond into his bucket. And so his conclusion is, 
I guess the fish, I guess the pond really isn't loaded with fish because here I'm, I'm dressed up as a fisherman. I'm going out fishing, but I'm not catching anything. And so either the, the, the man who told me that this pond was stocked was wrong, or maybe all the fish have just died. Maybe they all ate each other up and there are none of them left. So there's no, maybe there's no fish in the pond. That's his conclusion. And then what happens is uh, someone else comes along to the same pond and uh, they use the right bait. I don't know if they're using uh, worms or crayfish or, or lures, whatever. And lo and behold, they come back with a string of bass. So how do you think the first guy feels? Uh, you know, he might be feeling, well, they must be doing something wrong because I went out there every day and never caught anything. Or he might have the humility to say, wow, I guess I didn't know what I was doing. I was being pretty ineffective. And uh, so I'll, I'll let you think about the appli personal applications of that. If the pond has fish in it and we're not catching any fish, maybe we need to stop and think about, are we doing what it takes to catch fish? Or have the ability to learn from somebody who, uh, who, could, who could teach you something. Now, what a lot of people do when they come to this realization, yes, the pond is full of fish, and, but I'm not effective, and, and no one's ever taught me, not, not through any fault of their own, nobody's ever taught me how to, how to fish effectively. And so what they'll do is they'll look around and think, well, who could I learn from? And they'll, they'll look around, look around, and uh, the Protestant evangelicals is the first place a lot of people turn. And so they'll have the tracts and the approach and the way of studying the scriptures with people to pick up the Romans road or the four spiritual laws or things like that. But, you know, which is basically in, including in a lot of those messages, uh, those approaches is the idea that all you have to do is believe in Jesus. You don't actually have to obey his teachings and you can't lose your salvation, things like that. So, uh, you know, there's, there's very little about repentance and turning away from sin and living a life of obedience. There's nothing about the kingdom of God in there. So, so what happens is People who want to become evangelistic, who want to be effective, pick up the Protestant tools and it starts messing up their church. <laughs> you're, you're introducing Protestant theology, evangelical theology, into a church that's trying to follow the teachings of the kingdom. And the other problem, you end up with diseased fish. <laughs> Maybe you're catching some fish, but they don't have any intention of actually obeying Jesus and obeying the hard commands of Jesus. And so it's a very frustrating experience. So let's not learn the wrong lessons from the parable of the ineffective fisherman. Uh, two key passages for me in connection with this subject are have to do with the fields being white for the harvest. This is, this is what, like the fisherman who says, who, the, the owner of the, of the pond who says after he leaves, this pond is stocked with fish. They're in there. Matthew 9, 37, 38, Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then John 4, 35, <clears throat> do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They're already white for harvest. And so I'm thinking about this. The harvest is truly plentiful. The fields are white for harvest. So here's my question. Do you believe that's still true today? Do you believe the pond is full of fish that can be harvested? Do you believe that the fields are, the harvest is plentiful now? Or was that only true at the time that Jesus was speaking? So this is a, this is a foundational question, because if you really do believe the fields are white for harvest, and you're not effective in bringing in a harvest, then you think, well, what do I need to do to learn to become more effective without picking up the evangelical uh, uh, bad theology in the process? So I want to share about what I saw as part of an, a very evangelistic movement in Boston for decades. And this was a very, very unusual uh, thing in that it wasn't preaching easy. So outwardly, it may look like an evangelical church. This was a, it was a church of Christ, a very unusual uh, type of a church of Christ. 
But the message that was preached was radical repentance, not easy believism. It was total commitment. Before someone got baptized, they said, you need to sit down and count the cost of what is it going to take for you to follow Jesus for the rest of your life. Uh, There was a big emphasis on discipleship and mentoring of helping people to grow and mature. And there was an expectation from the outset that every member of the church would be responsible for evangelism, that they needed to take the Great Commission personally, and they needed to be concerned about making disciples and active in doing that. So that's, that's what the message that was preached. And the outcome is we saw here in Boston people from all backgrounds, nations, countries, economic Uh, uh, situations coming to faith in Jesus and making the decision to follow him. It was a very rapid, growing, multiplying ministry and a very aggressive church planting movement that came out of this that that, that reached all over the world. So I'll give you a little snapshot. It would be beyond the scope of this to talk about really what happened there, but to give you a glimpse of what happened. So things really got rolling in 1979. In 1980-81, 200 people were baptized, and that included 126 college students. The focus was on Boston because of all the campuses here. And I was baptized in, in March of 1982. And uh, at that time, at the time I was coming to the church, there may be 400 people in attendance. And then 1990, eight years later, a thousand people were baptized in the church that year, and the attendance was about 4,000. Okay, so this is a, starting from a handful of people in uh, about uh, 11 years to a church of 4,000 people in Boston, all ethnic backgrounds. It's a complete mix, black, white, Latino, uh, Asian, you, you name it. It was everybody was there. So uh, very, so I was right smack in the middle of that. I was actually for six years on the staff of the church, leading a small group in a very urban area in that. So I got to see and experience all of that. So if somebody tells me the fields really aren't white for the harvest, now Boston is not exactly the Bible belt, to put it mildly. Okay, so so this is a, you think, they think, wow, Boston, and a lot of people thought Boston, they're never going to be open to the gospel in Boston. The idea was, well, if they're open in Boston, well, then what about New York City? What about Philadelphia? What about all these other, what about Los Angeles? So uh, the extraordinary growth, uh, some of the, the hallmarks of the church, there was a focus on multiplication rather than addition. So you would you try you, you try to you make disciples who would then make other disciples who would then make other disciples and you bring the younger disciples along with you you train them to do what you're what you're doing and then they go out and do the same thing so it's focus on a few raise them up uh, when I first came to the church I was 28 years old and I was older than anyone on the staff of the church and this was a young church and made some horrific mistakes as a, as a as a result as you can imagine of people so young and inexperienced uh, leading a large group of people like this. So within 25 years of this, uh, of, of 1979, this was a movement of between 100 and 200,000 disciples. Okay. The largest church in the movement is in Los Angeles, which had about 6,000 disciples. And I, I talked to Finney. He ran into them when he was out in L.A., and he says, this is a very controversial group, but they're doing something right, because I see that people are very serious about sharing their faith, about repenting of sins and following the word of God. So, uh, they're, you know, while, while it may be uh, kind of strange in some ways, they're, they're, they're on to something. So uh, by, by that time, uh, there were, uh, they had planted churches from this one church in a hun- over 170 countries, okay? And when I talk about planning a church, they would say, all right, if we're going to plan, if we're going to evangelize Italy, we need to hit Rome first. We need to hit London first for England. We'll hit Paris uh, for France. We'll hit Tokyo. So they, they went after the big cities, and the idea was, all right, after we plant you, you're responsible for 
evangelizing the second tier and third tier cities of sending out church plantings in a few years. And so it was over 170 countries. I think it was every country that had a, a city with over 100,000 and in all 50 U.S. states. And this was, uh, no exaggeration, one of the most aggressive church planting movements in modern Christian history. What happened to it is another story. It's beyond, beyond the, the uh, it was some mistakes that were made. But there were some strengths. And so I'm grateful for having been through that experience to see the strengths and also the weaknesses. I can learn a lot from both of those. So some of the strengths included very strong reliance on the inspiration and authority of the scriptures. And remember, this is Boston, which is that's not the reputation of Boston. A big focus on campus ministry and evangelizing the campuses. You have top students from all over the world to come to the, the schools in Boston. So they wanted to have a big focus on campus ministry outreach. The group was, uh, maybe you can relate to this from your own background, very skeptical of seminary training. They thought seminary training messes people up and introduces all kinds of liberal ideas into their minds. So the group did not focus on seminary training at all. It really was uh, kind of a bias against uh, 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 traditional scholarship. And the focus was on growing and raising their own leaders, raising them up internally and not sending them off to, uh, to, uh, to seminaries. Um, the mentality of the group, although outwardly it may look like an evangelical church uh, to some people, it really wasn't. It wasn't. That was not the DNA of the group. The, the idea was everybody understood, as you said, do you have to obey the teaching of Jesus in order to be saved. Everybody would have said, well, of course you do. I mean, what are you thinking about? You don't have to obey the teachings of Jesus. So that was, that was very deeply embedded, is that we have to not just believe, we have to obey everything Jesus said. Now, there were things they didn't teach or they would explain away in the scriptures, but they understood that you need to, to, to obey. Uh, they practiced baptism by immersion for the forgiveness of sins. There was a claim in the church, we want to be just like the first century church. Now, you know, when, when you started to point out, hey, the, the first century church, first, second century churches believe some things differently than, than we do, and they line up with the scripture, that wasn't always received as, as, as favorably as I would have liked, but at least that was the claim. We want to be like the original church, which was a good thing, and the the the, the past was from a kind of a non-conformist uh, framework so that, that, that there was a big tendency. You don't get involved in politics. Uh, historically, in the churches of Christ, they were uh, uh, non-resistant. They, they stayed out of war. All of that, that kind of fell out of favor. But there's, there's a very definitely a flavor of non-conformity and an openness to the two kingdoms perspective. And I remember David Brousseau saying that the, the two groups out there that are the most interested in, in what he was teaching on the early church, the largest group was the conservative Anabaptists. The second largest group was the Church of, Churches of Christ. And the church I was a part of sent in an order for a thousand copies of one of David Brousseau's book. And that just kind of, that blew his mind. It's like, who are these people and what are they doing with the, the real heretics book? So um, so anyway, uh, the church made some mistakes, and, and there's one I want to, to focus on, and I think this is one we all need to wrestle with, of what do we do with this? I think we went, we went too far off in one direction with this. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 20-22, he says, The Jew I became as a Jew that I might win the Jews to those under the law, as one under the law, that I might win those who are under the law to those who are without the law as one without the law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak as I might win the weak. And then he says, I've become all things to all men so that I might by all possible means save some. So we took this scripture in, in some rather incredible places that we will become all things to all men so that we can save some. The, the, the focus was so much on evangelism. I talk, uh, sometimes I use the expression that some churches focus on offense and some on defense. Okay. And uh, uh, I think many of you are from groups that, are, that really have excelled for quite a while at, at defense of holiness, of keeping the world at bay. 
Well, this was a church that was focused on offense and not and not nearly as much on defense. And so their attitude was, okay, what do we need to do to get in the lives of people to to win them over? So, you know, if that meant going to a bar to, to, to reach out to somebody, whatever, you know, the, the mentality was, what do I need to do to become like people in the world so that I can influence them for Christ? And um, you know, I, I, honestly, I think that was a huge mistake in taking it way too far. Uh, and that's something I think about a lot. And, and actually... In our in our house church, uh, we have a house church that that uh, people mostly who came out of this kind of background, and we've really had to take a good hard look at what the things we we're missing scriptures about holiness and separation from the world and modesty and things like that, and and it's it's a it's a continuing after after many years there's a continuing discussion, particularly among the sisters in the group, of okay how how should we dress we don't want to dress in a worldly way all right but we want to become all things to all men so that we might save some so what does that look like and and it's it's been a it's it's an ongoing struggle and i think the example that i i think of and you can judge for yourself whether this is a good example or not but I, but i remember years ago reading a biography of hudson taylor he was with the china inland missions and uh, when they just, he decided, uh, being a missionary in, in China, they had people who were coming over from Britain to become missionaries and to join his group. <clears throat> and so the first thing he'd do after they came off the boat, as they were drying out from their trip, he'd, he'd take them in to a barber and he'd have the men shave their heads uh, to to look and, and and change all their clothes to dress like the Chinese did back at that time and wear the unusual shoes. And he said when they came out that uh, the, the Europeans would be laughing at them and the Chinese would be laughing at them both. And so uh, they wanted to, you know, he, he's trying to put this into practice, become all things to all men. And there's a quote in here that he said, um, um, he, he, people and and the European missionaries were really criticized his group. They said, "You're not acting like Christians, and you're not acting like British people either." So, you know, why, why are you dressing like the Chinese? And he, and he his response was, "Do you want to be remembered for the strange Western clothes you wore, or for the message of salvation you preached?" He asked them, and the new missionaries could see his point and spent time practicing how to roll up the sleeves of their tunics and eat rice with chopsticks. So <laughs> most of the European missionaries just wanted to continue to look like Europeans. And, and he's thinking, if we want to penetrate Chinese culture and influence them, uh, this is what we're going to do. So we, we have to, I think we've all got to wrestle with this. Of what is this going to look like? And, and how do we become all things to all men on the one hand? On the other hand, we don't want to do anything that is, that is sinful. So we took it way too far. Now, the secret sauce here. Say, well, okay, what, what was the secret sauce in, uh, in, in evangelizing and growing that fast? And unfortunately, this is probably the last thing you want to hear, but at Matthew 9, 38, Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Okay. And what you what people don't realize this was really, really hard work, okay? Evangelizing was hard work. It was facing a lot of rejection. It was pouring your lives into many people, some of whom would become Christian, most of whom wouldn't. It was going out on the streets. It was having people into our homes, offering hospitality, studying the Bible with people. It was a tremendous amount of work. And I think that's why Jesus says, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the harvest field. Because evangelism, if you really, really want to reach out to the lost, especially in the face of a busy life and a lot of other responsibilities, this is hard to do. And it's it takes time. It takes sacrifice. People made enormous financial sacrifices also to spread the gospel. I mean, I knew people who would, and uh, I, I knew one, one couple that they sold their bed and slept on a mat on the floor because that's the only thing that they had to sell for missions. Okay. 
So this is a, people made tremendous financial sacrifices, personal sacrifices. Many people decided to move to other countries to go into the full-time ministry and to move places where they could be trained. So it was just this really hard work. I mean, it was, I'm taking nothing away from uh, prayer. The people would be, people be praying. And, uh, uh, but, but I think that that was the big thing that people don't appreciate is that people just work really hard in evangelizing. Um, and, and you say, well, how did you meet all these people from all these different backgrounds? And pretty much you name it. I mean, I think, I think of the past in Ecclesiastes 11, where it says, uh, so you see it in the morning and the evening, do not withhold your hand. You don't know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. I would say most people became Christians as a result of somebody they knew who it was a co-worker in some cases, or it was a neighbor or a friend or a relative, somebody that they knew that was reaching out to them with the gospel. However, there are also people that were met, uh, you know, what we call cold contact, where you go out on the street and you just start talking to complete strangers. And some people became Christians that way. So people became Christians all kinds of different ways. And the attitude was, we don't know what's going to work. We'll try everything, every way of reaching out to, to the lost people who are around us. And I'll give some examples a little later. Now, this is, this is, this is my personal rule of thumb. All right. And, and, and this is just based on a few decades of experience here in Boston. So I have no scientific data to back it up, no statistical analysis here. So you just have to just have to take it with that in mind. Okay. So this is my personal rule of thumb. I say if I was going to share with with uh, with five, ten, twenty uh, people who were close friends or people I had some kind of a relationship to the point where they trusted me, maybe one out of five to one out of 10 to one out of 20 would end up becoming a Christian. I'm talking about not just believing, but being totally committed to following Jesus and repenting, turning away from their sins and, and, and the, the whole, the whole picture here. So somewhere between one out of five and one out of 20 people, Okay, if someone they know they knew and trusted shared with them, all right, uh, a stranger, cold contact on the street, it's maybe one out of a hundred to one out of a thousand. So the, the the fish are out there. It just means if you're if you're using that approach. You may have to get 99 or 999 no's before you get a yes. So that just means you just have to work really hard. You just have to deal with a lot of a lot of rejection, looking for the one who is that open. Now, a lot of the other people, there, there'll be people in that group who, who would be open if a friend shared with them, but not so much with a stranger. So if you want to know how we baptized thousands of people, it was because we were reaching tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people as strangers. And because we're reaching tens of thousands of friends. So everybody had the idea that I am here to seek and save the lost. My purpose is the same as that of Jesus. And that was that was the culture of the church. So I want to give some examples to uh, of um, have some examples written down of how people became Christians that I think you might find encouraging. Um Let's get my notes here. Okay. Um, and uh, my wife, uh, I remember uh, putting a lesson together on this on evangelism some time ago. And Allison said, you know, I've never been that terribly effective at evangelism. And then we started to list the number of people who became Christians through Allison's outreach. She, she's not, this is not false modesty. She just didn't think she was very effective. So Allison reached out to her sister. Um, she reached out to several of her sisters. One of her sisters became a Christian. She reached out to a coworker who became a Christian. Um, she reached out to a neighbor who lived across the street who was, who was pursuing an advanced medical degree. We were living in a very urban area who, who got baptized. She reached out to another neighbor who was the wife of a roofer 
she got baptized. She worked out literally to another a female coworker, uh, then another coworker, and uh, that coworker, whose name was Joyce, reached out to uh, uh, neighbors of hers who became Christians, and then the mother of the woman of the neighbor became a Christian. So what happens is. You reach somebody who reaches somebody else who reaches somebody else, and you have a whole chain of people who become Christians. And then our next-door neighbor and her husband became Christians. Uh, Allison reached out to her. And, and, and but somebody from a completely different background and mindset from Allison, like a polar opposite, but they became friends and, and uh, they became Christians. Um, I was reached out to by my sister, she became a Christian. She reached out to me, and um, uh, I would go out periodically just on the street talking to strangers and inviting them to a Bible study group, inviting them to church. And one uh, man who was single, who, who later on uh, married a Christian, uh, he, he became a Christian, and then I was going, reaching out to people, and I ran into a French businessman who was living in Cambridge, who was at the post office where I was, reached out to him, and he had a British girlfriend, and she became a, a Christian as well. And the last thing I did when I was in the full-time ministry is perform their wedding over in, in the UK and England. Um, and uh, one guy, I... I uh, uh, a friend of mine reached out to him. He was uh, uh, he was from a very tough background. He had a big scar on his neck from a knife fight that he had been in. He spent some time in prison and was uh, divorced. And ha he had custody of their two children. Very, very rough background. But he was bold and incredibly evangelistic. Uh, he reached out to uh, his niece, and uh, she brought her to church one day, and Allison got together with her and drove her back home from the, the party after church. We had a little Bring Your Neighbor Day gathering. Allison brought her home, and uh, so she was saying, can you explain what, what sin is to me? What's this thing, sin, that they're talking about in the church? And Allison said, sure. She gave some examples like sexual immorality, things like that. She said, well, what's that? And said, well, that's uh, having sex with someone you're not married to. And she was living with a guy at the time and had just had a, a, an infant boy, okay? And so Allison explained that to her. And then a couple of days later, Allison is talking to her on the phone. And the woman says, uh, okay, he's on the couch. What do I do next? Okay. A couple of days later, she calls back to Allison and she says, okay, now he wants to get married to me. <laughs> Okay, and Allison says, just hold off for a few weeks. I want to study the scriptures with you before you make any decisions about that. And of course, Allison explains that you only marry another Christian. We reached out to him, but he didn't want to become a Christian. So the woman became a Christian, raised her son in the church. He became a Christian. I was at his, mat, his uh, wedding a little while ago. Uh, so people from all different backgrounds. And my friend Richard, he's black and he... Um, uh, uh, he was so bold. He would get on the bus and he'd go to the bus driver and say, as he's commuting to work, he'd say, do you mind if I share my faith with people on the bus? And the bus driver usually say, go ahead, do what you want. So he'd go up and down the bus and he'd share his faith with every single person. I was on a bus once and I was, I was more to, I wanted to crawl under a seat. I wanted to jump out the window because I was so embarrassed that after 10 people in a row, say no, he goes to the 11th person like nothing happened, okay? I couldn't do that, but, but he was so bold. And once he, he, after asking everybody on the bus, he asked the bus driver, and the bus driver ended up coming to church and getting baptized, studied with his, the bus driver's wife, she got baptized, and then the bus driver's brother. And we studied with him, he got baptized. And I tell people, that, that I, with, this, with the bus driver's brother, I tell people I studied the Bible with and helped baptize the biggest drug dealer in Boston. And, and they're, they're amazed. They say, the guy who sold the most drugs in Boston, you baptized? 
I said, no, I didn't say that. I said he was the biggest drug dealer boss. He's about, he's about 400 pounds. He's just a big guy. So that, that's, he was, a, was all different people from all different backgrounds. And he would go up and down the streets, a really rough area, and call people to, to repent and, and tell them they need to get serious about uh, cutting out the sin, getting to church. Uh, so, uh, so, and I asked Allison, say, what do you think are the most important thing? My wife, Allison, said, you know, prayer. Uh, fasting, loving people, uh, really strong teaching on repentance. These were all things. And then working together as a group. So this wasn't a, this wasn't a solo. We, 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 we gang tackle people. So we'd all work together. If somebody came to church and we all work together as a group, the, the church, the group was, the church culture was very receptive to people who were coming in and very, very welcoming. Um, and we do all kinds of things. Every once in a while, we'd have a bring your neighbor day, which is be a big focus on, on visitors. We'd have people over for dinner. We'd have a uh, chili cook-off contests and invite our, our friends and neighbors to those. Um, you know, we, we'd reach out when soccer games or volleyball or playing ping pong or, or whatever people like to do. And, um, and then, and then, Insert the word of God in any situation and just insert the word of God in our discussions and see how people responded. Some people be curious and be drawn and other people be repelled. So um, that's what we do. So very strong emphasis on getting people into studying the Bible and, and bringing them to church. And a few practical things that I'll throw out there. Um, at the end of the day, and I, I had gave a lesson this morning on how to prove from the scriptures that Jesus is the Son of God. Um, a lot of people, if they just read the New Testament, it resonates. You know, they hear the Master's voice and they follow him. They, that, that they just get him into the Bible, and and they read the Gospels and do that. Some people need more proof and have more questions. It really depends on the person, and for for most people. I mean, there are a lot of, lot of good-hearted people out there, but there's, there's also a lot of people who just are holding on to their sin, and the bottom line is they don't want to repent of their sin. And that's what Jesus said. I talked about that this morning in John 3, 19 to 21. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. Men love darkness instead of light because their, their deeds are evil. And those who love the truth want to step into the light. So you have to realize we are in a spiritual battle that Satan has people enslaved, doesn't want to let them go, and he's, you know, he's, he's, he's tormenting them with all kinds of goodies and pleasures of this world to, uh, to get them to, to ignore God and, and to not want to repent. So the other thing is boldness. I mean, the people who were the most fruitful, they weren't the smartest people, all right. They weren't the they weren't the most eloquent people. The people who were the most fruitful were the boldest people. And so the apostles prayed for boldness. And uh, I, you know, if we gotta pray for boldness. This is it's hard to get rejected to speak up and then this and and to to and pray for wisdom and boldness. I think that's really important. Um, I'll throw this, I'll throw out a, a personal uh, thought here. A lot of people will take the personal testimony approach. Here's how Jesus changed my life for the better. I was, I had a terrible life, and then became a Christian. Everything became a whole lot better. Uh, read the Book of Acts. Nobody did that, so <laughs> nobody saved my life. In fact, a lot of people, their lives became a lot worse. And Paul, Paul says in First Corinthians 15, "If only for this life we have hope." We are of all men the most pitiable. So this is this is uh, the, the 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 testimony that Paul gave was not how his life became better when he became a Christian. It certainly didn't. His testimony was Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross and rose from the dead in fulfillment of the prophecies and was seen by hundreds of people. He said this really happened. It's based on historic fact that he is the Son of God, not how Jesus personally changed his life. And, and not, not the, I mean, this is, to me, this is, I call this the used car salesman approach. You too can have a wonderful life. If you just become a Christian, you can have a wonderful life like I do and wonderful marriage, a wonderful family, et cetera. And Jesus said, he's going to divide families two against three and three against two. So maybe they will by, by pulling a lot of sin out of their lives. Maybe the, the families will be a lot better. 
there's no guarantees about that. I've seen people's family, people's lives become outwardly much more challenging. So, so we shouldn't do that, in my opinion. Uh, I, I steer away from that. Let's stick to the, the word of God. This is a team effort, as I mentioned before. So everybody would pitch in and work together. We'd have group Bible study groups, and we would all, and somebody comes to church, everybody reaches out to them and is welcoming and, and uh, uh, really trying to make friends with them. We used a basic Bible study series. I'm not sure if this was a good thing or a bad thing, but that's what we did. And so we would study with people. We'd sit down and have a study for 45 minutes or so about the authority of the word of God, about the kingdom of God, about uh, 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 faith in Jesus, repentance, baptism, basic topical studies where we look at six or eight verses. And this was a almost a one size fits all approach. Uh, that's that's what we did. I'm, I'm not I, that, that, uh, I haven't made up my mind of whether that's the, the best idea or not. So. Uh, really, this is this is the challenge to realize that the pond is stocked. People from my background know, having been through what we, we, we were through, we know the fields are white for the harvest. The pond is full of fish. And maybe it's going to be one out of 20 or one out of 100 or one out of 1,000. But you think about that. If it's let's say if it's one out of of of, of uh, uh, twenty people or so, if you're living in an area of five million people, you can do the math. How many thousands of people are there who, if a friend reached out to them, would become Christians? That's a lot of people. We are nowhere near saturating any of the communities where we are with making disciples of real Christian Christians. So. Uh, I'll open it up for uh, any questions or comments or discussion at this point. Thank you, brother. That is challenging. I know there's a couple things that um, I would like to highlight and ask about. Um, I've got to say the, the question that you started out with, do you believe that the fields are ready for harvest, really challenged my view of the community that I live in. Um, yeah, it's, it's really something to think about. Do I, do I believe that that's true today in the community I live in? It's a, that's a gut level challenge right there. Uh, that's why I started with that, because I think if, if that's the only thing, if somebody dozed yeah. off after that, if that's the only thing they got, they got the most important thing. That, uh, that if you, once you get the idea, okay, the fields are white for the harvest, they really are, but I'm just, uh, I'm ineffective or my group is ineffective with this, then then you got to start asking the tough questions. All right, how bad do I want this? Mm -hmm. and, and what am I going to do to turn this around? That's Excuses right. are gone. <laughs> That's right. Because if you agree that they are, that that is true today just that like it was when jesus said it in the first place then it immediately turns the focus on well what am i doing what am i doing wrong right. what am i doing that's not effective um how lazy am i being or how much does this mean to me and a lot of you know a lot of successful evangelists the, the word means a lot to them their salvation means a lot to them and they want to share it out of that as well um so how much do i love you know, the people around me. I mean, it raises a lot of questions. We have a question on the chat here. It says, could Chuck give an example of typical approach to a complete stranger? And I know that maybe we should preface that question with, you know, we, we're not looking for um, uh, a formula or something like that. But if you have some insight. Well, it's really whatever works, uh, and it also depends on how much time you have. You're standing in line. You're going to be with somebody for a long time. You're in a car ride or, or on a bus, or it depends on how long you have. Um, one thing that I will ask people is, uh, are you a Christian? And you can take, no matter what they say, there's a follow-up question that goes with that. If somebody says, well, no, I'm not, I can say, well, have you ever read the Bible? Do you, are you, mm -hmm. do you have any interest in that? 
to go down that road, or if they say, well, I am a Christian, or sometimes people don't know what to say, well, I was raised Christian, but I'm really not going to church anywhere. So I'll just, I'll just, you know, if I have very, very little time, I'll start with something like that and just ask, are you Christian? And if, if, if they are, say, well, that's great. Do you read the Bible? Mm-hmm. because maybe they're going to a church where they never teach the Bible, or maybe they're not attending church at all for some reason. So I, I just start with that. Yeah, I think pointing people to the scriptures is a very um, healthy thing to do. I mean, I've heard numerous Christians that are professing Christians that go to church and may have gone to church for years, and they got into trouble uh, spiritually when they started reading their Bible, or you know, their story will start with, you know, but then we started reading our Bible on our own instead of just whatever was on the PowerPoint on Sunday morning. Uh-huh. And um, the word of God is is the most effective, powerful tool um, in transforming people's lives. I mean, we can all bear testimony to that. Yes. So I like that point of uh, pointing people to scripture right away. Yeah, there's I, I totally agree. One of the things I really like to do in any conversation is if I can share something of the word of God, either uh, either verbally or say, can I show you something in the Bible here? I got a Bible in my backpack. Can I show you something here? Because it actually talks about the very thing that we're discussing right now. And the Bible, it's like a magnet, okay? Mm-hmm. It's either going to draw people or it repels people. And it's, it has a, an incredibly powerful effect. So if I can get the word, the sooner I can get the word of God in front of somebody, or, uh, you know, some people are going to really be hungry and want to know more. And, and you can see them getting drawn in and other people repulsed don't want to have anything to do with it. So that's, that, to me, that's a wonderful thing to do. Yeah, that's great. Any other comments or questions? Um, another thing I, or go ahead. Well, I don't want to butt ahead of you. Go ahead with yours. No, that's fine. I've done a lot of talking already. You can go ahead. Yeah. Well, this was very stirring. I didn't get the first 15 minutes, so I don't know. Did the brother share some? little more just what their church looks like but this this thought of going out and making disciples and then having that multiply and it it, it sounds biblical well i am in kind of a traditional mennonite type church and we certainly believe in evangelizing we go we do jail ministry prison ministry uh try to reach out to neighbors but, you know, we, we don't have one soul that comes from any of the surrounding towns or villages that has come in and we have baptized him. So mm-hmm. I sometimes wonder, what are, we, what are we doing? What is wrong? And then hearing you share how it multiplied and spread, I was curious how much of... I'll just say Anabaptist type beliefs that kind of separates us from the Protestant churches. How much of that do you withhold in, in the church you described of Yeah. Well, the, the common, the common, the, the common thing was like the conservative Anabaptists, we would teach people that you must obey the teachings of Jesus if you want to be saved. And you need to continue in that. It's not just a matter of believing. So that's, so the evangelicals uh, really couldn't stand us because we're, we're telling him, no, no, you actually have to obey Jesus. So that was the foundation. Now the question is, and, and we would teach radical repentance and call people out on on sin, on sexual purity, on internet pornography, on uh, drunkenness, right. on drug abuse, all those things. So it was a hardline message of repentance. There were things, I mean, every group has its blind spots. And, and, and I can see that more clearly now than I could at the time. There were things that, uh, that we 
we had neg- we neglected to teach or mistaught things like head covering, uh, things like modesty. There was a whole range of different convictions about modesty in the church. Uh, non-resistance, there were a lot of people who just landed on non-resistance just based on reading the Bible on their own. And so, and actually that tended to grow uh-huh. more and more because it fits in with the rest of the scriptures. Uh, so I think the, the churches were, they, they definitely had more of a sense of there's two kingdoms, there's the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, so that the church would not be like a conservative uh, uh, evangelical church in terms of we didn't get involved in politics, things like that. So the, the idea is that we're supposed we're a separate kingdom. We're supposed to be separate from the world. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of things that were, that were, uh, that were good. We just missed, we just missed certain teachings really that were, there were some things that were missing. And those, there are a bunch of us that have come out of that background that have, uh, uh, you know, have enjoyed fellowship with people from conservative Anabaptist background and have gone back and reevaluated and added a number of things regarding holiness and separation from the world that we had, we had really neglected to, to see before. So, I mean, I, I use the example sometimes of churches that focus on offense and defense and the conservative Anabaptists, I think have been, are good at defense and holiness and separation from the world. And the background I was from was good in offense and I think uh, if you can get the strengths of both groups, you get both groups working together and learning from each other, you get the strengths of both both groups, then uh, then uh, Satan's got something to watch out for here. So that that's that's really it, what it, I think the Lord wants us to do. Mm-hmm. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thank you for your question. I think... Uh, a humble learning spirit is the most effective um, in these kind of things. Um, when we feel like we have it figured out, we're probably walking on dangerous ground. Um, we always need to be able to to learn right until the day we die, and especially in in um, service to our Lord. That's right. There was another comment you made um, in regards to Matthew 9, 38, send laborers. And that brings up the idea that it's it's work. It's hard work. And I think we can all attest that. And I, what, what I found that makes it the hardest work is myself. It's my own, you know, fear or, you know, whatever it whatever keeps you from opening your mouth and testifying to, to Christ um, that tends to make it the harder work than than pretty much anything. It's not because we don't have opportunities. It's not because we're not in a community where there's lost souls. I mean, it's not like there's no fish in the pond. It's not like the fish aren't biting. It's, well, have we cast the line? Or, you know, what are, what are we doing ourselves to hinder um, that work? And that's what it boils down to, you know, in self-reflection for me. Um, it's it's myself. I I make it harder than it actually has to be. I think of a quote or something that Finney has mentioned before. If you fear man, you don't fear God. And if you fear God, you don't fear man. I think that's a, a sobering thought in light of evangelism. Yeah, Finney's a great example. Finney's very evangelistic, uh, and he he's had an impact on great people. He's he's an upper call in so many areas. He's a good friend. He just lives about three miles away from me, so he's a good guy. Um, uh, I think of the scripture. One of my favorite scriptures on evangelism is from Second Corinthians. It says, "Knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men." <laughs> so this is, Amen. This is a uh, it's a. Uh, a good good to keep in mind is that uh, fearing God, we really we really want to persuade men and just just pray for boldness. I mean, I, I'm a I've got a lot of coward in, in me, and, and, and I, I got to pray for boldness. I've got to be willing to be rejected by people, and that's okay. Amen. I'm sorry, I have a question. Yeah, go ahead. Um, I, I, I got in late, 
I was in, in the middle of something, but I don't know if you already touched base on this, but in the case of like neighbors and friends, how soon do you bring up like the topic and Jesus and, and the Bible? I mean, I live in Mexico and uh, I visit with several families that are my neighbors. I help them like, you know, whatever, building a fence or if there is a sick lady and uh, I mean, they know we're Christians. My wife wears a covering, but uh, sometimes, even though they know it, they don't ask anything, and you're just kind of there waiting for a question, and if there's no question, you're just afraid of saying anything, you know? Uh, uh, how do you do this, and how soon do you do it? And, I mean, just, I mean, I, as someone said here, it's not a, there's not a formula, but. Well, I think most, most of us, not all of us, most of us err on the side of being cowards. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, are, need to become much bolder. So I think so. That's why I got to pray for wisdom and boldness both. So we we have the wisdom to know when to say, and then boldness to so when we're, when something's on our hearts, we just have the boldness to open our mouths and and say it. But if we're waiting for somebody to to say something, that's like the man. I gave an example of a, of a, a fisherman who's walking around holding his pail over the water, looking for the fish to jump into the pail. <laughs> That's, that's that's very very unlikely to happen. Generally, we have to break things up and ask some questions and and invite somebody, challenge somebody. Say, have you ever read the Bible? Are you interested in this? But uh, generally, we have to break the ice to do that. That's what I found. So there might not be a specific time. It's just it's always time, I guess, yeah, yeah. to share. Um, one thing that. I guess I have used as a stall tactic is how can I frame it, you know, in such a way. And I've realized that waiting around to, um, to find the perfect way to do it is just that it's a stall tactic and trying to use a, a perfect way of doing it. Also still trying to cast yourself in a better light, you know, to come across as intelligent or, or well read or something like that. Um, we, we could just speak for Christ. I mean, even if it makes us look like a, a stuttering idiot, we're still, we still need to just speak for Christ. Amen. Yeah. Uh, thank you for sharing. Got a question here for you in your experience uh, there with church of Christ. How many of your uh, thousands of people who joined the movement were from other churches as opposed to those who were unchurched? I don't know. It's, it was a it was a complete scattershot mixed bag. So some people were coming from other churches, but I mean, it's going to vary from area to area too. And in Boston, there are a lot of people who who uh, don't have any specific faith. So uh, maybe here more people like that in the South. Probably more people from other other church backgrounds. So it really it really varies from area to area. But I think. You know, this this roughly the same cross section of people, regardless of their backgrounds. Maybe just some people just haven't heard, uh, and never had somebody clearly and simply present the the basic faith to them. So it was a little bit of everything, uh, but certainly lots of people who were not from church backgrounds. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you. Do you find it's difficult to share with professing believers? Um, I, in the community that we're in, it seems like, you know, if you mention it or, or say something, um, yeah, praise the Lord. And, you know, it just kind of, it falls flat right there. Um, how is your experience in, in evangelizing with that? Well, it's the follow-up questions that make the difference there. Right. You, you got to probe and find out, uh, do they read the Bible on their own? Mm-hmm. Okay. Good point. That's, that's, a, that's a good place that I like to start is getting into the Word of God. Do you read the Bible on your own? And, and then what are you reading? What are you learning? Uh, and I'll just, I'll just try to engage and find out what do they believe, what do they do? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think if somebody says they're a Christian, that opens up a, a huge range of questions and things you can talk to them about, about the faith. 
I guess then you could challenge them um, if they aren't, or if they are reading the scriptures, you can talk about what they're learning. Right. Um, is it, is it fresh? Is it new? Is it alive? I mean, it is yes. the living word. Is that their testimony? Um, and if it is, then it's time to encourage and, and, you know, continue to teach, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does anyone else have uh, comment or questions? If not, um, we can bring this to a close. Thank you so much for for teaching today, uh, Chuck. This is definitely something that we wrestle with on a on a daily basis or we should be wrestling with on a daily basis um, in our occupations and walks of life there's a lot of opportunity to talk to people and and use our time wisely um, i was reading in in luke about peter's denial of christ at the at his trial and it just really convicted me that it's possible I'm denying Christ in the times that I've had opportunities when I knew it was an opportunity to say something about, and I didn't take it. Um, it's like, I'm denying him in my life, uh, that convicted me and I don't want to deny Christ. We need to speak his name and, um, share it with the world around us, show that it actually, we love him and he means something to us. And, um, not just share it as a, I appreciated that you mentioned, not just share it as a, a gateway to a better life. Um, that's definitely not a, how Jesus depicted following him. Uh, he definitely gave a lot of warnings about how hard it was going to be to follow him, taking up our cross daily, separation from family. Um, you know, there, it's, it's, not a, it's not always going to be roses for sure. And you definitely hear the gospel being preached as a, a self-help type thing where it's going to improve your lifestyle. It's going to make you a happier person. Well, that's true. It will improve your lifestyle and make you a happier person, but not in the sense that the world looks at, you know, improved lifestyle or happier person. Um, so we want to, I need to be careful not to fall into that ditch as well. So thanks a lot for sharing. I'm greatly inspired and I'm sure we all are. God bless you for your, for your work and your study in this. And once again, um, would you close us in prayer? And I'll make an announcement after. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, Lord, help us to have the heart of Jesus mm-hmm. that is concerned about the lost sheep, that's concerned about the dominion of darkness, that wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Mm-hmm. Help us to love our neighbor as ourselves and to put that into practice and not just be protecting ourselves in our comfortable way of life. Lord, I pray that you will uh, convict me uh, of my uh, cowardice and my lack of boldness and uh, help us all to, to overcome that, to be afraid of you and not afraid of of any man, not afraid of people, not afraid of what people think of us. Help us just to be uh, good disciples of your son, Jesus. Help us to be willing to be rejected and misunderstood and, and judged unfairly. Help us to open our mouths and give us the words to say. Help us to share the word of life. Help us to share the word of God with people that they can be drawn to us and to it and and that uh, help us to be good representatives help us to be lights not to be hypocrites and and not not to be cowards help us to be men of god and spiritual warriors help us to be effective fishermen for the kingdom to bring in the great harvest that's out there and i pray this in jesus name amen amen thank you brother There will not be a strength to strength meeting next week. It's an off week. And the following November 20th is going to be Hope in Depression, a Mental Health Challenge by Berlin Yoder. 
So we all welcome you all at six o'clock in the morning on November 20th for that talk on depression and mental health. Thank you all for joining today. Um, I hope you can, um, hope you were inspired to use this teaching to reach the lost souls that you rub shoulders with, that you run into your friends. I saw the success rate with sharing the gospel along friends and acquaintances is a lot higher than it is with strangers. So I think that that would be a wise place to start with the people that we built relationships with and um, share the gospel with them. I would just like to close today with reading uh, Jude 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to God, our savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you all. Let's go with God. God bless you. Iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.